1: Hey everyone! Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Engrave, maker of the coldest hardware wallet Zero and stainless steel backup graphene. Engrave brings you the highest security in a touchscreen experience to safely manage all your crypto offline. Enjoy a ten percent Real Vision discount in Engrave.io shop with the code Real Vision. Now to the top analysis of today's markets.
2: What to make of December PCE? Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, January 26, 2024. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Jeremy Schwartz, Global Chief Investment Officer at Wisdom Tree. Jeremy, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, Ash. Good to talk to you. It's always great to have you here. Boy, we have such a great setup uh, from the macro numbers uh, to talk about here with you today. We were just talking about this a little bit off camera uh, strong GDP, decelerating inflation. Dare we say
0: it? Should we get excited? Is this a Goldilocks scenario? We we've been using the term Goldilocks. We started saying it at the you know through the end of last year. We thought inflation was coming down, and the trends are even better than the official numbers. And we'll get in. We could get into some of that about what we think is really even much cooler inflation than you get from the BLS. Uh, but real GDP coming out higher than people expected. You all this all the real time indicators we look at weekly jobless claims every week that's one of the only high frequency indicators you get every week and you had it hit in a 60 year low in that um you're not really seeing people losing their jobs in a in a big way we it's actually nice that that ticked up a little bit this week because it was so hot in some ways you know not people people not losing their jobs last week but yeah we we would call this goldilocks that it's the fed tightened rates a lot it's not causing uh a recession as far as you can see today, and uh and inflation is trending well?
2: So here are the numbers Q4 GDP, uh 3.3 percent uh on a seasonally adjusted annualized rate basis, PCE 0.2 percent month over month, year over year, 2.9 percent. As you say, uh these numbers looking quite favorable, uh moving in the right direction, certainly. So so let me ask you this: why is everyone so hesitant to use the phrase Goldilocks? and why do people so many of them uh in this economy feel so much pain right now so much anxiety. Uh, what is the underlying driver? How do you think about that?
0: Well, everybody thought we'd get a recession last year. Now you so see maybe there's been a few people who didn't think you get a recession, but but a lot of people were surprised with the dramatic tightening you wouldn't. The inverted yield curve, we've been strongly inverted for a while. And the question is, when would that translate? Eight of the last eight times we've had this inverted yield curve led to a recession. And the question is, can we avoid it this time. There's definitely a possibility that we do avoid it this time. And you know, each of the last times they had to invert the curve. They were dramatically hiking rates. Inflation expectations had been rising. They were raising rates to bring down inflation expectations. This cycle, people thought it was transitory. I mean, you heard the Fed really say it was a transitory. And, you know, really the long-term inflationary expectations haven't jumped. So you might be skating through this cycle without it. Um Productivity is a big part of the story right now. It's it's one of the things that we thought could offset negative job growth last year. We had a very strong rebound in productivity after a dismal 2022. I think you're going to continue to see productivity be strong. We're believers in the AI story over the, the next five, seven years. And so that could be another thing that cushions some of the job losses that come out. I think you're going to see that from tech companies in particular. We saw that with the year of efficiency at Meta strong gains last year as they got rid of some people, but didn't lose any real revenue, sales, profits, all that. They, they did fine, I actually thrived by, by being a little bit more lean. I think we're going to see that. You're starting to see that at Google. You're starting to see drips and drabs of that. We've a thousand workers here, 20 workers there, but they might have more significant versions of that. And so you might see more tech layoffs being replaced by AI, but, but generally, overcome that and have positive real GDP. So that's part of our baseline view. But to your point- Let me ask ask you this about productivity, since you mentioned it. Uh, What do you think the secular
2: drivers are there? Is this an AI story or are there other secular drivers that are pushing
0: uh, to support that number? Well, last year, I think it was a rebound from a terrible 2022. So you had some of the worst productivity in the last 80 years in 2022. So,
2: so it's base base effects last year.
0: Some of it is coming back. I mean, there was this question of what were all these, they, we hired over 5 million people in 2022, very, very little real GDP. It's like, what are they doing working from home? Are they on their phones? Are they, you know, what are they doing? There's all these questions about why it was so bad last year. It just, it was, a, it was a nice rebound. Going forward, we—I don't think we've really seen the AI beneficiaries yet, and so I don't think you'd say it's the new technology that's really driving it forward. But we do expect it will. Uh, so that's why I say the next five to seven years, we expect it to go up. You know, if you if you look the last decade, it was only around one percent, and the long, the very very long term data on productivity says it's about two percent. So it's been really trending quite low and disappointing. Uh, but we think it can get back towards the 2%. So that's one reason why we're structurally more bullish bullish on that.
2: Yeah. Uh, so we're talking about this idea, this notion of the Goldilocks scenario. I guess the the sort of two counter cases, the Scylla and Charybdis, that we were trying to steer between, uh, on the one hand, were all those recession calls that everyone seemingly had out in 2023. Uh, and on the other was the so-called no-landing scenario, where you saw rapidly, uh, you you saw the the the, the thesis was that you wouldn't have the decline in inflation at the rate that was hoped. Uh, we've avoided both of those so far. So let me ask you again, What? why do people feel so much pain and so much anxiety uh, if the data looks so favorable?
0: Well, real wages have barely broken ahead of inflation. Like if you look at the wage growth versus inflation or last four years since the pandemic, You've had about 20% cumulative inflation and wages are up about 20%. So the average worker just keeping up and, you know, you hear some concerns, sometime about a wage price spiral. We see no evidence of that. You need wages going dramatically ahead of that productivity variable that we talked about. You know, if you have 5% higher wage costs, but they actually produce 5% more, it's not really inflationary. It's really wage growth and excess of productivity growth for firms. So one, people shouldn't be worried about that. I'd say the average consumer, if you didn't own a home, right? Two-thirds own a home, one-third don't own a home. If you don't own a home, you look at your home prices. They're up 47% when wages are up 20% over the last four years. That doesn't include mortgages, right? Mortgages going from 3% to 7%. So the cost to buy a home, dramatically higher. And that's one of the things you could say, people are looking at just the increase in home prices and saying, you know it's, it's very much out of my reach unless somebody gives them you know the down payment and and helps them buy the house I, yeah or
2: you you already own one right and you're just right. rolling if you away. own it you're feeling good
0: you're you're feeling quite good if you own your home at a 3% mortgage um but now you're you're trapped and you can't move
2: yeah yeah and and, and by the way the other point to point out about the when you look at uh, wages versus inflation those are those are lumpy those are not evenly distributed so Uh, You know, if you're somebody who's been in the same job uh, like me, for example, for the last several years, right, you're generally your employer doesn't come back to you and say, hey, you know, we want to just give you a 20 percent increase because of inflation. It's balancing out as new jobs uh, roll on, old jobs roll off, uh, but it doesn't mean it's evenly distributed. And and for people uh, who are in that position of having relatively similar earnings, even if they've gotten some small cost of living increases, probably been
0: outstripped by inflation. growth. That's a shout to Real Vision. We got to get, get Ash getting some some bigger wage growth here. Um, but um, yes, no, yeah, no, for sure. You know,
2: the problem is they know I love my job, so I don't have a whole lot of negotiating.
0: Yes, um, it is. The job levers is where you saw the biggest jump. And even there, you're seeing, you can say one of the signs people are, there's a little bit less job openings, a little bit less job hopping is one of the signs of those signals for, the economy is, is maybe people are getting a little bit less confident there of where we are in the economy. If we said, is there a crack in the Goldilocks narrative? You know, we we look at money supply as one of the key issues. Uh, and money supply has not been growing at the 5% levels that we'd like it to be growing. That's sort of 2 to 3% inflation, 2 to 3% real growth. So money supply is one variable that is something we'd like to see better. And the job hoppers are another thing. They're not, as much, not showing as much confidence in the economy but the rest is is has been been pretty strong.
2: Jeremy now that we've teed it up in sort of broad terms I know you've got some charts to make some specific points that you want to walk through uh, let's take a look at those Brian. Okay Jeremy jump in uh, walk us through what we're looking at here.
1: So I think this first
0: one uh, is you know we've been doing our own calculations of inflation um, and you know, one of the key numbers is shelter. And so this one, uh, if if I could see it um, right, is basically the headline CPI with real-time shelter versus BLS shelter. Our real-time shelter, we've done it a few different ways. This one is using the apartment list rental prices. And, you know, essentially what's happening in in the BLS numbers.
2: Let me me just jump in here to explain. So, so folks know what they're looking at. Uh, So the the BLS number, that's the gray line that represents the official headline CPI with the official shelter data and the blue line uh, is your proprietary modification. That's your real-time shelter. And it's showing it, showing uh, actually less inflation than being uh, stated in the BLS number. Is that
0: roughly correct? Much less. So the official BLS shelter is over 6%. The apartment list is negative one. So when you plug that into the actual CPI, to redo CPI with this different measure of shelter, instead of a headline number of 3.3%, you get less than 1%. I mean, it's a dramatic difference. And it shows you how important shelter is to driving the CPI that we have. Uh, and in court- it's so, very- so why do
2: we see this difference? and And how have
0: you corrected for it? Well, the BLS number has a very lagged way of calculating shelter. It's like there's been some papers. The San Francisco Fed actually did a paper on the BLS survey method. It it could take 12 to 18 months for what's happening on day-to-day rental prices to get into the way they calculate it. There's, Mm. There's all sorts of debates about what is the proper way of measuring this number. But the BLS is very, very lagged. It's not a symbol of what's happening real time. And so there are indexes, like the Zillow has a rental index. This we, this one has the apartment list. The Cleveland Fed has another one that's more real-time that's even lower the sort of deflationary forces than the mm-hmm. apartments that we're using in this one that shows negative 1%. So there's just a, a different way of surveying and it's kind of crazy the way the BLS does it. But in core CPI, it's 40% of core CPI is this shelter. So it's mm-hmm. like, do you, do you really want to use and say, hey, we have a real inflation problem. Hey, inflation's 4%. Core CPI is 4% because of a crazy number. And so, you know, the real-time data says we're less than one. You could, this is saying the Fed should say mission accomplished. We're, we're much less than that underlying inflation that you're seeing on the official number.
1: Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
2: If we can bring that chart back up just for one second. Jeremy, this is really fascinating, really compelling and really interesting because what you're saying here uh, is that your methodology uh, shows more accurate reflection of what's really happening in the world. The other thing that's really interesting when you when you look at this chart is what you see is that uh, the BLS number actually, according to your model, dramatically understated the rate of yes. shelter inflation when it was peaking. So what you're using is a higher frequency data series here to try and get a better snapshot of what's actually happening. Uh, boy, this is incredibly interesting stuff. Uh, and uh, as it, as you say, uh, if this is true, it suggests mission accomplished. I mean, what's really interesting about this, and for people who aren't uh, macro folks, uh, who don't follow this nearly as closely as you do, that, you know, most of the analysis that you hear out there when people, you know, go on cable news shows, and they pontificate about what's happening with inflation, they're giving you their interpretation of this t- tr- traditional data set, what makes this conversation so interesting, Is that Jeremy? You're bringing your own data and saying, "Hey, not we don't. In some sense, we don't disagree with the interpretation. It's that we don't think the data is accurately capturing what is happening from the macroeconomic perspective. Really, really interesting stuff.
0: And well, and it also could say, "What is it likely to do? Or you could see the relationship. There's a definite relationship between the real-time spiking and the other one being lagged, and it catches up. It tells you that it'll. uh, This will likely come the Fed's way. Right, so th- there's going to be a downward for people who are worried. Well, is inflation going to be sticky? Is the Fed not going to be able to do anything because inflation will be sticky all year? And I've got some good friends who ha- are, who are in that camp. Well, this survey method of the of the shelter should give some cover to the Fed that inflation is going to trend th- downward for them. And there's obviously risks to that thesis, and the risk, the primary risk today. Is what's going on in the Middle East and the and the shipping supply chain disruptions and things right. people can ship around Africa instead of going through you know the Suez Canal and even the Panama Canal has has some issues. So there's all sorts of supply chain disruptions there. Goods inflation likely to be high. I, I'm not expecting those re- those things to be easy resolutions that's going to solve overnight. The shipping seems to be a real issue, and you'd expect it to have some goods inflationary issues. But should the Fed say we need to address those supply chain issues? Can they even address those supply chain issues? Um, it's not our base case that they really should go after that. It's, it's, this shelter is going to provide them a lot, of, a lot of cushion for inflation coming their way this year.
2: Well, well this is really interesting. Uh, and obviously, we're talking about two different things here when you're talking about, for example, the, the choke points in the Red Sea. I read that article about the Panama Canal and the drought this morning in the Wall Street Journal. Really interesting uh, as well. Uh, but obviously, these are exogenous factors to this model. But boy, this chart, really fascinating stuff. This is worth the price of the show alone. If you've just tuned in to see uh, this chart, a uh, really interesting stuff. And and by the way, we should say you got something of a confirmation today on a print on PCE that shows inflation decelerating, presumably precisely as this model would suggest.
0: Yep. The two, per, you're basically trending the last six months of core PCE well within their 2% target. So all the different signposts, signposts are showing you that I think inflation is not going to be the major issue. So we've been saying the Fed is no longer one of the primary risks for the market. We come Before the December meeting, we were a little worried the Fed could be stubborn and say, even if the economy starts weakening, unemployment starts rising, we see more layoffs. They could say we have this 1970s risk. And there had been some commentary from some of the Fed people saying, hey, we can't do a stop and go policy. This higher inflation risk like the 1970s is there. And frankly, because we think they've gotten everything wrong this entire cycle, we didn't have confidence that they would be as good going down on the rate as they were going up. They'd be as stubborn hiking as they were, you know, in terms of lowering rates when they have to. They could have been stubborn saying inflationary risk. We think, if necessary, as you heard from Powell, if necessary, they will cut, which is if unemployment starts rising, they'll cut. Um, and that's a key pivot. so we we think they definitely lowered the probability of recession in December, and that that helped us upgrade some of the risky assets in 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 portfolios that we have discretion on.
2: Jeremy, let me uh, ask a question and, and and this is sort of uh, the looking forward aspect versus where we are right now. I suspect that one of the reasons why there may be so much pessimism, uh, you know, it's interesting, and we obviously have an election year, and when you listen uh, to you know both sides, Uh, who are going to be running in their camps, uh, talking about the economy, they, I think, are correctly identifying that there is a lot of uh, cynicism, anxiety, uh, general discontent, malaise almost in in, uh, in the American people right now. And and I suspect that one of those factors is what you pointed out earlier, which is this, you know, 20% inflation uh, over, you know, roughly whatever it is, 36, 40 months, a very short period of time for a lot of inflation. So it's interesting because you know the nature of inflation and and the way it inflicts pain is it's it's clearly cumulative so on the one hand you have this uh, substantial kind of pig through a python inflation moment where it's like those prices have gone up it's impaired uh people individuals balance sheets it's obviously uh, had an impact on uh on on the quality of life for a lot of americans and at the same time what you're seeing here uh, is this dramatic deceleration from this chart how, how do you sort of reconcile the pain that people feel in the present moment with the slowing down of the second derivative, the rate of change here.
0: Well, when every bill, we, most people have jobs. I mean, unemployment is at historically low levels. That should be comforting. Now, because, I mean, are, more people have second jobs to keep up with the inflationary pressures. And there has been some talk about all the rise of temporary or secondary third jobs that people have to have because prices are so much higher. So, not going to right. discount that issue. Uh, again, if you don't own a home, that's a real struggling issue. Long term, though, productivity is what drives wage growth. And that's where I think we can be optimistic that we think we're in a new age of more rapid productivity gains. And I think that will help feel the, the underlying wage growth for some. Now, there could be some disruption where they, some of the higher priced people might become redundant because... AI could be an equalizer and, and help bring the skills up for, for everybody. Um, but you know, in the, in the short term, it's like the people who could use it the best had some rewards to be able to use it. But I think over time, it is a little bit of a, a, a level. It helps equalize talent across the board. So it'll be interesting how that evolves. The, in terms of the election implications for the markets as investors, um, the sentiment can swing both ways. And obviously, you know, it's a it's a close call to see where things are going to settle. There's pros and cons. If, if we, obviously, it, today it looks like Trump and Biden, we could all think we want some new candidates. And That I think is a general sentiment from a lot of people that they want new candidates. But it's some, it looks some like, vigorous
2: young men, perhaps in their 60s.
0: It seems like they are the candidates. And um, there's pros and cons of each. You know, with with Biden, you'd say you get more of the same, less new uncertainty, um, you know, Trump measured his success by gains in the stock market. So, you know, if you're an investor, he's like, hey, he's, he's saying, is he doing a good job? Is the market going up? So if he shoots himself in the foot with different policies and that's caused the market to tank, maybe he'll backtrack on some of that. But, you know, he has been more tariff oriented, Trump has. And tariffs, we're sort of free market, libertarian type people, um, or at least I am. And and I think that is the tariffs are not great. Um, but. You know, I think the the longstanding geopolitical tension is there with China. I don't think that's going away. And I think that's- but By the way, only- it
2: is fascinating to see this this split in the Republican Party uh, between uh, folks who are kind of uh, pro, pro-MAGA, pro-tariff versus the the free traders. It's, it's really interesting in, in, in many ways to see this, this, this very clear and distinct shift uh, in the Republican Party internally, uh, you know, let alone with the conversations uh, with the other side. Listen, I wish this conversation were four hours because there's just a million things I we could talk about, but I do want to pull on this thread because this chart that you showed was so powerful and it's so interesting to look at this thesis of inflation decelerating far more rapidly than the Fed and and the other government agencies that are collecting this data, BLS specifically, suggest. So let me ask you this. If we were to pull that line of thought through, what does it suggest about what may happen in terms of rate cuts next year, uh, if in fact, inceleration, there's a significant deceleration in the rate of inflation as you suggest, Jeremy?
0: Well, the inflation going down means they become ever more restrictive, um, that real rates are higher. And they say they're well into restrictive territory today. They're admitting that. So we think they become
2: ever more restrictive at the current policy. Yes, without changing
0: rates, because inflation is so much lower, they become ever more restrictive. So I think that The signposts we're watching that money supply. We want money supply growing five percent. if it it was contracting last year, it hasn't contracted. I mean, it contracted a lot in the Great Depression, but it really didn't contract in the previous ninety years. So that's a very, you know if that's not growing again. that's a that's a challenge, and that's another sign that they're overly restrictive. but we 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 think they'll be able to cut um because of this inflation coming down. Um, but if the economy looks so strong right now, they'll say, "Why should we cut?" You know, the, all this, all the economic data—the real GDP being higher, jobless claims being low—they could rightly point to a strong economy allowing them to stay. They just don't want to overstay their welcome, staying too high because it can turn. And uh, that money supply is one of those signposts that they should be thinking about cutting.
1: We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
2: It, it, Jeremy, as we're talking about this, I want to bring in uh, a clip, a conversation between uh, Jan van Eck and Raul Pal uh, actually today on the Real Vision platform, uh, because it touches on some of these points, some of these broader macroeconomic issues that we're discussing right now. Uh, let's take a look at the clip.
0: You know, you still have, you know, so if you think about Sideways 2.0, there are three main macro
2: ingredients to anything. Uh, to our governments, right? So you look at fiscal policy, is the US government going to spend a lot of money this year? I I doubt it, right? Um, Because the Republicans are in control of the House. So that's kind of flattish. Um, And then you look at monetary policy, I've kind of said, I think a lot of the loosening is sort of priced in. So I don't, I don't see the the Fed getting super stimulative. And then global growth is kind of, you know is challenged because europe has structurally higher energy prices and because china is letting if you will the markets work its way out of their property problems so um you know it's sort of a meh <laughs> in the middle okay so jan's thesis kind of flattish fiscal monetary and global growth uh he calls it the meh middle what are your thoughts jeremy
0: well, you know, you made some comments about China there and everybody in the last two weeks is trying to call a China bottom. You know, on, on social media, you see a few people different ways, but you see some of the China actions were trying to ban short selling. Well, that feels a little desperate. You see them bringing out rumors of Jack Ma buying shares of Alibaba again after he sold shares of Alibaba. They did their reserve cut. Um I'm not sure that any of these actions are really going to change the direction of the economy. I, I agree with his comment on they're letting the market forces take care of the property sector. It feels like they don't want to overly stimulate is my current read of the situation. So I'm not sure, um, you know, I know people want to call this China bottoms, but very out of favor. It's the cheapest it's been relative to its own history in a long time. I just think there's other opportunities of where I could get cheap stocks, U.S. small caps. 12 times earnings, very similar to broad China with a growthy tilt. You could get Japan at 13 times earnings. It's another play on global growth, but that's an ally of the U.S. India for the long run, certainly more expensive, but I think better demographics, better growth profiles. There's so many other places I'd rather be than China. But I know people are trying to call the bottom. I'm I'm not quite buying it uh, at the moment.
2: Jeremy, we've got a lot of questions coming in. Uh, what do you say we take some of these guys? There's some really terrific questions coming in. Do it. Let's do it. First one comes to us from AJ Steininger. Uh, is there any possibility job numbers come in hotter than expected for this month, causing the fed to stay more restrictive than the market has priced in? I think we got to like a hundred percent down a little bit, but there was like a hundred percent price in of, uh, uh, three, uh, four, 25 basis point cuts, a hundred basis points before March. Uh, of 24. I mean, boy, was there an expectation of significant easing?
0: There's no question that that's a very good possibility because the jobless claims haven't been there. So, you know, if you would have been seeing spiking jobless claims, you might say the jobs prints could come in low. Um, You know, one of the things we say, the Fed doesn't have to deliver the cuts priced into the market to actually have a healthy market. You know, it's, if the Fed's not cutting rates, it's because we're not having a recession. It's because unemployment is basically where it is. It's we're continuing to have a healthy economy. And it's not because of this misguided inflation narrative anymore. It's that they don't think it's necessary because the economy is staying very robust and then earnings are gonna stay very robust. It's gonna be all about earnings growth. And you know we the, the market currently has, or the, the forecasters have $240 of earnings for the S&P. It's just over 20 times earnings. That's a 5% earnings yield. That's a pretty reasonable return. If you, we add inflation on top of the earnings yield to get our expectation of nominal returns over the you know, intermediate term, call it five, seven years. And so you're talking 7 to 8% returns, reasonable. Um, if you think about where TIPS yields are, the TIPS yields are below two, that's your inflation-adjusted bond yield. So you still have over a 3% equity premium. That's the long-term normal. You hear a lot of people, say now that the feds at five and a half that's so much more competition to stocks or they look at the 10 year at four you know 10 420 that's a lot more competition to stocks you got to look at their real yield it's the tips yield that's the key judge for an equity premium because stocks are real assets companies grow prices they grow their earnings and dividends with inflation can't look at nominal yields and a three percent equity premium is pretty reasonable
2: next question comes to us from ch ed Keen to hear how Jeremy recommends positions in which assets for rest of 2024. Thanks. I think it's just a general question about uh, what your uh, outlook is uh, for risk assets.
0: We think it, I mean, I I mentioned earlier when we saw the fed change their tone a bit in December, it lowered the probability of recession. So we upgraded our assessment of the the prospects for the markets and particularly say small cap value stocks in the U S we have an ETF DGRS is small cap quality and growth. 12 times earnings and eight percent earnings yield it's considerably higher you know the s&p at 21 times this is 12 times earnings it's normal multiple is 15 times earnings and you know we we say that's priced for a recession so if there's less chance of a recession buy the things that are priced for a recession so u.s small caps were that we like japan i mentioned even up 47 percent our dxj last year We still think Japan's with a structural long-term gains. The Nikkei is approaching the highs from 1989, but it's still cheap. And it was deflating from one of the biggest bubbles of all time, still cheap, still some positive catalyst coming. Uh, And so we like small cap value, DGRS. We like Japan, DXJ. And core large caps, DGRW is quality dividend growth. That's been one of the anchors of all of our portfolios for the large cap space. Those are three of our, our top ideas.
2: Okay, next question. This one comes from Glenham. This is a question I've seen a lot recently uh, in our questions. Jeremy, are you watching Treasury QRA? This is the quarterly refunding announcement uh, next week. If so, any thoughts or predictions? Uh, And by the way, I should probably ask for folks who don't know, give us a little bit of a description uh, of what QRA is
0: and why it matters. It's really how much the funding needs, the government needs to do, all their debt and deficit spending. Um, I can't say I'm a particular deep expert on each of those issues. i I do think that there's this question of the deficits on how much we need to borrow and what are the needs, what are the funding needs of the government? And I think one of the risks towards yields is that i, I I've been saying not to chase the ten year at four ten. We think that the ten year could settle sort of where it is here over the next two years. And so you could get in short duration, five and a half percent. Well, why go to long duration if right now, stocks and bonds are extremely positively correlated. So, you know, the risk is that the yields spike again at the long end. And, you know, so the funding needs of the government, all the deficits that we have, that's one of the issues. Could yields keep trending higher, get no recession, that that's a risk for, for, for some of the parts of the market, given the correlations in the market. So I just stay short duration our model portfolio. is still short duration of, from the benchmark and uh, we're watching it, but I can't say I know every nuance of, of what's going on there.
2: Okay. Here's an interesting question from one of our regular viewers, Ralph Humphrey. I noticed that wisdom tree has a BTC ETF. What are Jeremy's thoughts on the BTC ETF horse race so far? And assuming the ETH ETF is approved, that's a big assumption, but it's an interesting question. Which crypto assets do you think would likely be next to take an ETF form? Lots about crypto ETFs. I know you guys have a product in the market. Uh, What can you tell us?
0: Well, it's interesting. You know, The SEC had been trying to protect investors' interests by not approving the ETF. I mean, that was sort of the narrative. We're we're protecting investors' interests. And I mean, I think that was... a a mistake in my personal view. Like when you look at the competition that the ETFs brought, 10 people came out, five, 10 to 11 people came out, five to six of us waived fees to zero. Our ETF currently is not charging a management fee. We waived it to zero. Um, It's brought so much competition to the space. The cost to execute has come way down. That was definitely in investors' interest is to bring the competition, the ETF wrapper, very good uh, as a democratizer for the space. I mean, we've been in the market since 2019. We launched a suite in Europe, so we have have a good amount of history doing this. I mean, we're building an app called Wisdom Tree Prime. Um, if people haven't checked that out, it's a, it's a blockchain-based wallet that has Bitcoin and Ether directly. You can transact in that directly, but it also has treasury funds across the entire treasury suite from floating rate treasuries to long-duration treasuries, TIPS. It has a money market fund. It has equities. And we're gonna have a debit card there that you could spend from all these different assets. So we're believers in the technology. You know, We're building our own app based on blockchain technology that's sort of direct to consumer. Uh, we're excited by that prospect. The ETF is just another wrapper. We've been doing ETFs since 2006. It's nice that you can now get crypto through that wrapper, but a lot of people had it directly already in these other formats. And so it's just opening it to a community of financial advisors, really, who couldn't manage their clients' portfolios using it. So it opens up to a new space. We'll be watching it closely. We're we're participating in the space. Um, but we're big big believers in the technology generally.
2: When's your expectation of
0: what that's gonna launch? Which which one? Uh, the wallet app. It's out. I mean, I'm using it. I've replaced my largest bank. I am using it. I'm paying my credit cards, I'm paying my house payment, I'm paying my car payment um it's it's live it's in 36 37 states um today so not every state but a lot of it's got two-thirds of the the country can use it today we're still waiting on money transfer licenses from some of the states so we're working hard to get those over the coming weeks but should check it out if you're in one of those 36 states that can use it um definitely encourage you to, to try it out and let us know what you think
2: let me guess my state the state of new york probably not one of them
0: New York is not the fastest moving state, but we are working hard. We are working hard to get New York. Uh, Jeremy,
2: really a truly fantastic conversation. I found that inflation data, especially and your analysis thereof, incredibly interesting. As we come to the conclusion of this conversation, final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers and our listeners with.
0: Well, I, I do think the Fed is yesterday's concern. The Fed has, we we thought there was a risk for the Fed being sticking to this false scenario of the 1970s. They've seen the light, place going to come their way. And if necessary, again, if necessary, the economy weakens, they will support it. So that leads to a positive risk environment. Again, small cap U.S. is one of those places you can look at. And sort of structurally, we still like Japan as one of our top ideas for where you should be. Um, you know, supplementing your outside U.S. exposure.
2: I guess no one wants to go down as the 21st century Arthur Burns, uh, but such an interesting sort of a different perspective from what uh, lots of other folks on the street are thinking. Uh, Jeremy, classic conversation. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thanks so much, Ash. Have a great weekend.
2: Thanks so much for watching and listening this week to Real Vision Daily Briefing. Maggie's back next week. See you then.
1: Hey everybody, today's Real Vision Daily briefing is sponsored by Engrave, maker of the coldest hardware wallet, Zero, and stainless steel backup graphene. Engrave brings you the highest security in a touchscreen experience to safely manage all your crypto offline. Enjoy a 10% Real Vision discount in engrave.io shop with the code REALVISION.